Um, so I, I mentioned this, I was here back in October and uh, we looked at the first five verses of Psalm 103. And now, three months later, we're going to look at the second part of that. Um, yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and start by reading it, and then uh, we'll pray and we'll, we'll go from there. So this is Psalm 103, verses 6 through, I'll, I'll read through 19, and we'll read the rest uh, in a little bit. Um, and this is of David. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Spirit's help. Father, um, we ask uh, by your word and by your spirit that you would, you would help us. Um, we ask that you, we would leave this morning, leave this place, um, believing even just a little bit more that your love is better than life itself. That we would leave more in love with you. Um, Lord, please pull a few more scales from our eyes and let us see you more clearly. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. All right. I want you to think about a time when something was great in theory, but hard in practice. Uh, so far, my experience has been that's, that's like most of adulthood. <laughs> um, yeah, so this morning, we're going to look at the second part. And uh, I, I'm assuming not everyone was here for the first part, or it's also been three months with holidays in between. And uh, you probably don't remember anything I said. So we're going to do a little bit of recap to get us up to speed here. Um, so we, we talked about what the normal Christian life looks like, how David is kind of outlining for us what his Christian life of worship looks like. Um, a lot of Christians in the past have called this uh, the dark passenger. Uh, you might, this might be the only thing you remember, actually. Uh, I called it the janky wheel. Um, it just, like, even though we're new creations in Christ, 
We've been made new. We have new hearts. We still have this pull off to the side, this indwelling member that pulls us away, right? We worship other things. We keep going back, putting our trust in things other than God. We look for hope and satisfaction and peace in other things. And we don't often feel this kind of effervescent uh, worship just, just bubbling out of us. Our hearts grow cold. And so we talk about David telling, speaking to himself, reminding himself why to worship God. Now that, that idea is a hard and discouraging truth. That pull, that continual growing cold, that cycle, right? That's a hard truth about the Christian life. But it is a truth, right? Paul is very clear in Romans 7 about this continuing internal battle he has. Now we're, we're living in a time when um, people are, are de- deconstructing their faiths in droves. Um, and I would argue that I think a lot of that had to do with the isolation of the pandemic. Um, but I would argue that many, not, not all of these, but a lot of these are at least partly fueled by a disillusionment about Christianity for this very reason, right? They aren't changing, or they don't, they don't see themselves changing, or they don't feel themselves changing. Or change is hard, it's, it's harder and it's slower than they thought. Um, I had a youth pastor... Uh, when I was in high school. And his, his teaching is actually a large part of how I became a born-again Christian in high school. And uh, a few years ago, he walked away from it all. Um, and his line was, Christianity doesn't work. And what he meant was he wasn't changing. He didn't think he was changing. And this is a hard reality of living on this side of heaven, that change is an instant And we don't always have control over how that goes. And I think this is part of why a church like this, um, look around, is is really richly blessed to have uh, saints who have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Um, So people like me, right? I'm young, I'm green. Um, I can be blessed by the perspective and the patience of an older saint who has a lot more years of perspective of how God works. Now, one of the things I think that's kind of neat, if you do remember three months ago, uh, we sort of get this, this live and in color view of this idea, like, all right, we did the thing three months ago where we talked about all of God's benefits. We, we reminded ourselves of why God is good. And then I want to guess that the last three months, uh, you know, you didn't just figure everything out. Right? We, can, we can tell ourselves about the glory and the beauty and the worthiness of God, and we can, we can feel refreshed by it, but our hearts grow cold again. Uh, one of my seminary professors had this quote on his door from the, the famous Chicago pastor, D.L. Moody, and it went something like this. He said, the only way to keep a leaky vessel full is to keep the water running. And that's why we meet here every week. It's not like a one-and-done TED Talk where we like get it, got it, go, we're good. All right, we come because we're leaking. We need to constantly have that tap on, receiving God's grace, that reminder. And so I want to say to you, if you're here, and uh, the last three months of sermons, or maybe just this last week since the last sermon, um, you're like me, and you still haven't gotten it all together since last week. 
Um, I want to encourage you, you are in the right place. This, the church is a hospital. It is not a museum. It's a place for the forgetful. And most of all, and praise God for this, it is a place where we come and we meet with and we worship a God who is so, so patient with us. Now, on the surface, the, the, the second part of Psalm 103 that we just read, it looks really similar to the first, right? It's just laying out a bunch of things about why God is great. Uh, but if you look closely, uh, you can see that after verse 5, David makes a shift, okay? He moves from addressing himself, uh, oh, my soul, he's addressing himself, his own heart, his own soul, and now he's addressing everyone around him, maybe the congregation or those in his kingdom, And this kind of reaches this explosion uh, at the end, verses 20 through 22, where he says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. Bless the Lord, all his works. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Like he can't help himself. I I don't know about you. uh, I have never told the angels to bless the Lord. My prayer has never gotten to that place. Um, when was the last time you, you felt that, uh, that overflow, you know, you, you told your, your cup of coffee or your dog, bless the Lord to acknowledge its maker. Now I want to, I want to point out a distinction here. This, the, this isn't the sort of like command that Dave is giving. That's a, a superior over an inferior giving a kind of command Um, So there there are those in scripture. So for example, Psalm 100 says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Right? So the idea like you're a sheep, he's the shepherd, you're a creature, he's the creator. That is a legitimate appeal to worship God, the creator. Like God has right to receive that kind of worship from his creation. But that is not David's angle here. So what what is David's angle here? We could say that his his personal private worship is moving him to evangelism, to sharing the good news about who God is and what he's done and who he is and who he has been to David. Now let let me... unpack this a little bit. Um, For those of you who have kids, and uh, this may be a cringe reference here, but I'm curious how many of you are tired of hearing about Minecraft? Uh, If you don't know, Minecraft is a video game. Or or Fortnite, um, another video game. I I have a nephew who used to be like really into Minecraft, and he's a little older now, and he's super into Fortnite, and I guess that's the graduation progression, I don't know. Um, And he's like a pretty quiet kid. He was a pretty quiet kid. But if you wanted to get him talking, you could just like talk about Minecraft, and it was like, pfft, I mean, no trouble getting him talking. And that, that's actually like the simplest example of how worship moves us to evangelism that I can think of. So let me, let me walk us through this here, okay? Here's how this goes. Kid discovers Minecraft. Again, video game. Uh, he plays it for the first time. Kid says in his heart, holy cow, this is awesome. Okay, parents then have a hard time pulling kid away from said game of Minecraft, right? And then kid says in his heart, I can't wait to play Minecraft again 
And so he like moves around his schedule. I don't know if kids have schedules. Um, he makes sacrifices to play, like he does extra chores or whatever. Uh, he comes back, he plays Minecraft again, says in his heart, this is even better than I remembered. And then what happens? He invites his friend over. He runs to the door. He meets his friend and he says, dude, you have got to come check this out. Come and see. Isn't this awesome? See its merit. See its worth. Bless it. That's worship leading him to evangelism. And we can make evangelism like really complicated, right? Uh, we, we think of, we've got like formulas we do. We've got we've to do the Romans road or we've got to, there's like a color scheme one. I don't, I don't remember that. Um, you know, certain things we have to say to get it right. Arguments we have to be able to win. And we can get really scared to enter into that because there's just so much we've got to get right about it. But the bottom line, evangelism is this like outward-oriented praise. It's just the, it's the final part of worship. It's the exclamation point on the sentence of worship. The, uh, the author, C.S. Lewis, put it like this. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. The Scottish Catechism says that it's man's chief end to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. And so in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And this is actually really good news. Because contrary to what you might think, right, when we hear evangelism, we probably we give this kind of collective, like, I know, like, I need to be doing that more. I'm not that great at it. Like, you know, 2023 is going to be the year. I'm going to talk to this one coworker. I'm going to have an evangelistic conversation, right? Um, but this idea that worship and evangelism are linked is good news for you and for me because it means that if you want to grow in evangelism, the key isn't to like study techniques more, to read more books on evangelism, to dig into apologetics more, to know all the right arguments, or even to become like a super expert on the Bible. Like those are all great things and can be very helpful in evangelism. But the key to growing in evangelism is to worship more. To worship more deeply, more truly, to worship more desperately. To set before your eyes again and again the beauty and the loveliness of God. To see how deep your need for his mercy is and how abundantly that need is met in Jesus. And just to take the gospel in your hands and turn it over and look at it from every side, every glimmer, from every facet. I feel like I can lend a bit of perspective on this, actually. Um, so I'm, I'm fresh off of four years of studying the Bible, apologetics, relating Christianity to culture, you know, even taking an evangelism class. You would think that would do it, right? 
But simply knowing more facts about the Bible, knowing more good arguments, didn't move my feet toward other people in evangelism. And they didn't grow me as a husband who reminded my wife about Jesus more often, pointed her to Jesus more often. What does move me outward like that is when I am most deeply drinking from the well of God's goodness and grace. And when his mercy toward me in the face of my sin is at its most incredulous. The more you and I taste and see that the Lord is good, the more our inertia will carry us into others, saying to others, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and see. And so we actually find ourselves right back uh, where we were three months ago uh, when we looked at the first five verses, where David was in verses one through two. He says, bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits, right? Our quest again is how do we move ourselves to worship? And so David is going to do for his congregation exactly what he did for himself. He's going to set before them the worthiness and the beauty of God. So just like last time, we're going to take a look at the, the case that he lays out. And we're going to do it by highlighting four themes that David hits on. Um, the first two are God's mercy and righteousness. And the third is God's compassion. And the fourth is God's steadfast love. So first, let's consider God's mercy and righteousness. In verse 8. David says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Verse 9, he will not always chide. Some translations say he will not always scold. Or he will not always accuse. He won't always bring to you criticisms, reasons you're wrong. Right? Your relationship with him at the end of the day, at the end of your life, will not be characterized by him constantly telling you how wrong you are, right? He's not the coach or the parent or the older sibling you had growing up who is nothing but harsh, unrelenting. The only thing you heard out of their mouth was just scolding criticism. You never get it right. No, there, there will come a day when you will get it right because he has made you fully right. Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior. You'll look up and all there will be is his smile. And it will be his joy to present you to the Father. He'll be thrilled to do it. And there will not be an ounce of reproach or criticism or correction, or discipline left. None. He will not always chide. How is this possible, though? David says he is merciful and gracious. You may hear echoes here from the Old Testament of God's covenant revelation to Israel. Verse 10, he says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. This gets at something that theologians have come to call double 
imputation. Now that's a fancy term, you don't need to know it. But the idea is essential to the gospel. So it basically is a fancy word for a swap, right? It sounds fancy. It's, this is how God applies the gospel to us, right? How God can deal with us or not deal with us according to how our sins deserve. Now, sometimes we can answer this question, how does God do this? By softening our view of sin. But you actually don't want a God who just ignores or winks at or turns a blind eye to evil and justice, who says, ah, it's, it's whatever. Right? When you read the news and you see another um, terrible crime, human rights violation, your heart rightly breaks and cries out for justice. And it would be horrifying if the God of the universe didn't care about that. And it would be and go against everything in his character. No, God works righteousness and justice, and he is the measuring rod of righteousness and justice. David says, he works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. So this means that he doesn't just let oppression and unrighteousness and sin off the hook. He can't do that. So how can God be the Lord of righteousness and pardon sin? Not treat us as our sins deserve. How can he be perfectly just and forgive my racism or my sexism? The answer is this idea of double imputation. So let me, let me put the idea like this. Um, uh, this is pertinent issue. Uh, let's say I have $50,000 in student loans. That might be a low number uh, nowadays. I don't know. Um, anyway, and let's say my friend just came into $50,000 from a trust fund. He just got access to it, right? Okay. So he could give me that $50,000 in cash, right? That would be single imputation. So suddenly I'd have all that extra money, but I still have the debt. So if I'm smart, I'm going to put all the money to the debt. I'm debt-free, I'm at zero, friend is at zero. All right, we're both breaking even. Still not a great friend uh, deal for my friend, though, who had the money and gave it to me. Double imputation looks like this. It would be, he gives me his $50,000, and then my $50,000 of debt gets transferred to his name. And so suddenly now, I've got all this cash, no debt, and my friend has no money now and a lot of debt. And so, right, that deal got a whole lot better for me, but it got a lot more costly for my friend. All right, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So do you see the exchange there? Jesus had full righteousness, no guilt, right? You and I. No righteousness, full guilt. And the moment you believe, the moment you, you, you open your empty hands to receive it in faith, those accounts are swapped. So God can not treat you as your sins deserve, not because he's lax or chill or turns a blind eye, 
or because he doesn't care about justice. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins because he dealt with Jesus according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities because he put all of our iniquities on Jesus. Um, Isaiah 53 has become one of my favorite passages of scripture. Um, The older I get, the more I see how sinful I am. Sometimes I doubt the gospel is really this good. But let me read uh, just a couple verses from Isaiah 53. This is 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you hear the substitutionary language in there? And do you feel the scandal of that? This is not a fair deal. And there is no other God in the world who is like this. Like every other God, every other idol, um, it's just an input-output machine, right? You, you, only, uh, you only get as much as you give. You only get as much as you burn on the altar. Think about your, your careerism. Or your, um, your, your worship of your family, worship of money. They only give back to you what you put in to them. But God is merciful and gracious. He doesn't deal with you as your sins deserve. He removes them from you as far as the east is from the west. This next idea David talks about is is kind of related, but it has more to do with God's disposition toward us, how his face, uh, we could say how his face is looking at us when we look up at him. God is compassionate, like a father to a child. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust, right? He remembers the very moment that he took up dust from the earth and he formed it and he breathed his life into the form to make a living being. We're not all-knowing. We don't have unlimited power. Sometimes we act like we, we are, uh, like we do have that kind of power. But no, like think about it. If we want a plant to grow, we have to, we have to save a physical seed. Uh, we've got to dig a hole in the dirt. We've got to put it in cover it up, water it, weed it, hope the sun shines out like we can't make the sun shine. And we have to wait. But our God, our creator, he can speak and life comes forth. I have um, two older brothers and uh, I grew up playing like sports and, and video games against them. And I'm three years younger than the next closest one, so uh, 
there was a lot of losing <laughs> involved. Um, and they were, they were both wrestlers. And I'm like 70% sure the reason I never wanted to take up wrestling is because um, I was like always getting absolutely trounced by them. <laughs> like, it's like they had no category for the fact that I was three years younger, you know, three years less developed. Like, just, yeah. They didn't know my frame. God knows your frame. He knows how he made you, what he made you out of. And because of this, he has compassion on you. His heart is gentle and kind toward you. Now some of you, some of us, um, we say we know this, but it hasn't changed the way that we treat other people. And if I'm honest, that hits me the hardest. Um, Am I gentle with Noemi? Am I patient and compassionate with her anxiety? Do I honor her limits? Or do I exasperate her and show her no understanding? And some of us here, we, we need to hear that God has compassion on us because we need to let it change the way that we see ourselves. We have no compassion on ourselves, maybe. You don't know how to show yourself gentleness. You don't know how to honor your limits as a creature. You don't know that you're dust. And Jesus' invitation in his ministry is, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, Finally here, David speaks again and again of God's steadfast love. This this word for steadfast love, um, chesed, it shows up all over the Old Testament. And it is a special word. It's not just love. It's it's God's special covenant love toward his people. It's grounded in his, his unconditional promise to be their God and to make him their, or his people. His promise to never leave them or forsake them. And it's rooted in a promise that he made with Abram in Genesis 15, where he bound himself to keep both sides of the covenant agreement. This is not a 50-50 covenant agreement. God himself is the surety, the, the guarantee of the promise. That means that if you accept his forgiveness, if you embrace his mercy as your only hope, when you have been adopted into God's family, made his child, his love and affection are permanently on you. Permanently. You do not need to be afraid that he will betray or abandon you that he will disown you if you mess this up or mess it up the whatever number of time. You say, wow, you don't know about, no. He has sworn by himself and he is a God who keeps. 
keeps you, he keeps me. I'm going to end with uh, some words written uh, actually several hundred years after David's psalm. And these were written by the prophet Micah as he's looking out over a, a stubborn and wicked kingdom. And he's telling them about the discipline that God's people are soon going to be facing on account of their disobedience. But after all that, the prophet turns and he concludes and he once again points them to their God who relents, who forgives, who cleanses, and who pardons iniquity. And he reminds them of what will have that last say. And it's almost like he had the promises of Psalm 103 floating in the back of his mind, right? A light, when all the lights go out. Hear these words as we close from Micah 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea and you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is our God. Let's pray. Father, um, it's impossible to overstate your goodness. And um, thank you that these words are true, that you are who you say you are. And uh, we ask that we would repent from believing otherwise and throw ourselves on you and uh, trust that we will receive mercy and kindness um, because of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.